netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, I'm Mike Seymour, and welcome to this FX Podcast. You know, you can't have anything to do with production at the moment and not be aware of the huge impact and inroads that are being made by virtual production. In particular, every time you turn around, it seems like somebody has another LED stage that they're setting up. And while, of course, we've been really interested to cover these at FX Guide, we've also become aware that there's kind of a lot of hype and stuff going on around them. And as I said, a huge number of them opening up. We thought it was therefore worth having a sort of a in-depth discussion about what are the issues around these LED stages, but not with the people that are trying to sell the stages, nor the people that are making the software or the componentry or the screens or any of the stuff to do with it. And so we put together this FX podcast. Joining me is Noah Kadner. Noah is an incredibly good writer for American Cinematographer and also has been pivotal in writing this uh, virtual production guide that certainly many of us have been uh, enthusiastic to read over the last, I guess, uh, two years since it came out. I know I was in LA when it first uh, appeared. And Jason Diamond. Jason Diamond is a director and, of course, somebody that many of you would know from the uh, VFX show. Jason has a real command of cinematography as well as visual effects. And of course, with his brother, uh, regularly directs and does a lot of work with uh, commercials and just knows the world from the production point of view very well. And so between the three of us, we're going to now explore that world of virtual production. And I guess not only, but primarily focused on LED stages. What are the issues? What are the flaws? What are the things that people aren't talking about? when you're maybe getting just a, a sort of more sales pitch view of the problem. I hope you enjoy this podcast. It's uh, one of a number we'd like to do that are just basically tackling topics and looking at exploring sort of technical issues around those topics rather than say, just looking at a uh, recent film or TV show. And I'm joined by Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? Very good. Nice to uh, be here in an additional capacity. And with Noah Cadnett, who's virtual production uh, editor at American Cinematographer and wrote the book on the uh, virtual production guide, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant. I remember at the time, Noah, when you wrote that, I got an early release copy of it. And uh, myself and a couple of other people were on a virtual stage in LA, kind of like flicking through the PDF, like kind of seeing <laughs> who you'd managed to speak to. But you actually did multiple versions of that, right? Yeah, yeah, we're in version uh, two, uh, and it's yeah, it's it's, all, it's this close to being a textbook. That's kind of what we're aiming for these days. Yeah, no, it's excellent. So we wanted to discuss between the three of us the state of going stuff with virtual production because it struck me that, um, and I don't know if you guys agree with me, but there's kind of like a bunch of terms flying around, and a, certainly a huge amount of hype flying around. And it'd be really nice to just sort of get a professional view on where we think things are actually at. So I guess the first thing I should say is for a lot of people, Jason, they're saying that virtual production is an LED volume, but virtual production is more than just an LED volume, right? Like it's just LED volumes is the one that sort of caught everybody's attention. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, do we consider virtual production like any real time process for, uh, close to final or final pixel in camera, whether that's green screen with trackers and a, and a, a composite in a computer or. I mean, no, I wouldn't, would you say that uh, Lion King was virtual production? Oh, well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, we, we've kind of come to define it as anywhere where 
the digital and real worlds collide. So yeah, motion capture, visualization, you know, any, any mm -hmm. place in which you can achieve something without waiting for the render. Like if you're able to see it as you're working on it, it's pretty much falls under that umbrella. So I guess one of the hallmarks of it is interactivity in real time. And uh, whether it be in a virtual sort of space, like a volume, whether it be in a virtual production uh, VR headset, or it just be on a screen or an iPad where you can just move around and do stuff. It's the, it's the idea that we're kind of being very tactile and very physical in the sense of doing it in the moment. But also I think that inherently leads to Jason, a, a terrific form of collaboration that you didn't get when everything was like, yeah, I'm going to do it in post. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly requires people to make decisions a lot earlier in the pipeline. Uh, not that things can't be fixed later, quote, fixed or redone or whatever with the traditional techniques you do anyway. But but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a fan of making decisions as early as possible so people can collaborate across all the departments as you would on a traditional production, you know, which includes wardrobe and art department and all those things which become virtual art departments and virtual wardrobe set dressing what have you and, and just all the departments in general cinematography do you reckon they are making those decisions or they are because i mean like one of the problems with well the benefits i guess of vfx is you can actually make wardrobe changes you can make you know blocking changes you can make even multiple takes being combined later so you kind of have given people the get out of jail free card of not having to make a final decision on set do you think that virtual production is getting people to commit on set well, I don't know about like, uh, I mean, like on the, the virtual elements, people have to see something. So otherwise you're just shooting a green screen. So people do have to make some sort of decision. Of course, like I said, anything could be changed afterwards, but now you're doubling your budget. If you're having people really commit to doing stuff on the screen and in, or in your, in your volume, and then you're going to pay them again to change it later. Uh, I mean, Avengers, the last Avengers movie with the, those white sort of shelly suits that they had is a perfect example. Yeah. I mean, you know, why did they do that? I don't know. Probably any number of reasons for uh, your, to your point, decision-making time process design, or we have the actors for this much time, let's shoot it. We can give them to your point armor later. Uh, I, I don't think there's a massive pressure. I don't think anyone in these days feels a massive pressure unless you're indie and you don't have the money to throw around. Uh, but on the larger budgets, I mean, clearly people are, are giving themselves the, the break, break this glass in case of opportunities. No, it seems to me like virtual production as it's sort of a subset of, it, of LED volumes became like super popular. Um, I don't know what, you've got a sense of how many uh, kind of stages there are. Um, our estimates range at around like 250 to 350 kind of number. Um, I don't think there's a definitive number unless you've got one. Yeah, we actually just did this kind of attempting to be comprehensive map in the magazine uh, last month. And I wanna say in this database, we had a about 120, but these are like, you know, production level, like pretty significant volumes. Um, you know, like where you would be able to shoot a car commercial or better all the way up to the size of the Mandalorian. So, you know, there may be any number on top of that that are more experimental or meant to be used in house. 
but the, the reality is these things are getting built like crazy right now. And the likelihood that there's one somewhere near you right now that's up and running and available for rental is, is getting greater and greater by the day. It seems that way. What I want to keen to talk to you guys about is, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but it seems to me that when we get to the LED volumes in particular, there's this real bifurcation of, I'm going to stick up a bunch of LED screens and hook it up with uh, normally end display off a UE4. And I'm going to call that an LED volume. And then there is other people that are like, we're going to have a fully calibrated volume where we're trying to work out where light is at any point in the volume. And we're going to really work at reducing the latency, um, getting the uh, colorimetry like perfect and do an enormous amount of science. And in addition to that, of course, uh, you know, build in those loops that go into uh, a full ACES pipeline. And that, that those are sort of two quite different uh, companies. And you can turn up at one that says, yeah, well, we'll move the screens wherever you want and it'll kind of project and reflect. And the others are like, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Uh, this is like, uh, you know, hardcore science. Would you say that we've ended up now in that sort of two-tier world? Oh, at least two tiers. Yeah, I heard... Uh... As Idoween, the uh, one of the DPs on Mandalorian calls those the Cadillac stages, where it's like all of that is really very well laid out and, and very carefully controlled, and and yeah, it's it's almost show up with good looking content and it's point and shoot as far as how good everything looks. But the reality is, it's it's like any other production infrastructure. You can have something extremely threadbare that may end up giving you something kind of compromised or you to all the way to the sky's the limit and you know you you can do no wrong because there's so much support it it really comes down to budget and experience and just kind of who you want to work with and so yeah I, I i wouldn't even break it down into two tiers i would say there's just a real continuum of um experiences one might have in in what someone might call as a virtual production volume i mean in the in the sort of the textbook selling case, or maybe not the textbook, I shouldn't say that to you of all people, in the PR selling case, it's like we're going to create a, a sort of an authentic lighting environment that will reflect on the actors in a way that is, you know, as close as possible to reality, dot, dot, dot. Notwithstanding that you have to open up these volumes sometimes to stick a hard light through. Um, but, Jason, I guess the other thing is like if it looks good in camera, it is good. So if you've got a car commercial where you have a kind of a, a bunch of panels that are reflecting on a car so the car just looks good. Like who's to say that's not valid? Yeah, I mean, agreed. I think there's also, I'll expand on that in a second, but I think to what you guys were saying before about the tiers, I agree with Noah that it's not maybe that binary, but at the same time, I think as you find across any medium or um, service slash art uh, sort of medium, that you're going to have companies that are just um, service-based businesses, and then you're going to have the developmental businesses that take the, that the service side of it is really just to feed the R&D habit that re refeeds the service side, so that you can be constantly moving the ball forward while um, having real-world uh, billing opportunities to prove your point. Uh, I think that's maybe. I don't think that that's even binary, but I think that's maybe where you would come across. But to your point about, you know, if it looks good in camera, I mean, absolutely, you know, putting a putting just a eight by eight wall of of panels that have no tracking camera tracking at all that have a you know a car driving plate 
four feet from a car to get light on an actor and reflections on the car. If you shoot it right, it looks awesome. You have a grip off to the side, blowing some wind into the actor's hair and maybe another grip with a mirror bouncing a light for some, for some sun flares or something. And again, if it looks real in the camera, then it's real. So uh, I, I think it's more about creative solutions than saying, hey, we have this gajillion dollar volume with all this stuff and you have to put your car right here to do the thing because we have all the toys. Uh, I think creative problem solving is always the best solution. But, but it kind of gets to also the economics of it, because I think that what's happening is that a bunch of people are kind of cu curious to do the uh, parallax uh, proper um, version of the LED stage. But when it comes down to actual economics, like I know that there are major productions that are going on these stages and basically using them like um, reprojection, like they're not doing the parallax, they're not doing complicated shots for three reasons. Firstly, they don't have really good access to a pipeline that enables those assets to be finaled and, and also uh, either decimated or, or done in a way that'll work in a real-time environment. So that's one. They two, they sort of don't have the, uh, the budget to be able to afford the prices that the premium or the Cadillac stages are going for. Cadillac stages are marvelous, but they are like really expensive on a day rate. And then the, you've got all of these stages appearing, right? So it's like not so much a race to the bottom, but if you're a producer who's maybe a little less technically inclined and somebody's quoting you a number vastly cheaper than another, um, you know, now where I just wonder, like, is it, is, is the, uh, is the Cadillac, the, the dream and the reality just uh, basically a moving green screen? Um, you know, it, it really comes down to what you get in the camera. I mean, what you don't get, let's say, if you go, if you don't go to these Cadillac stages is you could wind up with issues where tracking is not ideal. So, um, you know, your parallax doesn't quite sync up with the camera. Uh, you can run into a lot of, um, uh, gen lock and color space issues. And what that looks like is you end up with like wavy lines on the screen, or you wind up with, um, uh, compressed looking color or a screen that doesn't quite look dimensional and real because you can kind of see that it's not really deep jet inky black. It's kind of like a plugged up dark gray. And, you know, what that translates into is more 2D fixes in post. That's, that's a little bit of the dirty secret about all this stuff is that it's in camera. There's no such thing as in camera or not in camera. There's a little bit of a continuum to that too. That, you know, even in the best case scenario where you're capturing a lot of stuff in camera, there's still at the very least going to be some color grading and potentially a fair to a moderate amount of 2D fixes to make it really work. And so, um, you know, that's something to consider when you're looking at what seems like a really good deal on paper with maybe a, you know, very bargain stage that that may be what you're setting yourself up for uh, in the long run. So I like to think in in as these things mature, you're going to start to see the reputations of these you know, closer to, closer to and including Cadillac stages to be the ones that give you less of that issue in post and and give you more closer to a 100% in camera kind of a kind of a product. And so, yeah, I mean, I, get, I think with anything else, it's a this is kind of we're in the gold rush now. We're in the wild wild west phase uh, of this technology, and you know, things are just starting to settle. And we'll see. And while we're on that, Jason, like these these uh, panels are expensive, right? I mean, they're like like the reason that those those numbers are so horrendous on a per day rate is that 
buying a lot of high quality panels as opposed to mm -hmm. just any panels is an expensive proposition. Well, that and the wait times because everyone is trying to get into it. So you spend all your money on your panels, but you don't get them for four, six months. And in that time, maybe a better panel came out and now your, your competition down the street put in the order a week later for the ones that happen to be coming out a month after that or what have you. And so there's that kind of, um, I wouldn't use Moore's law, but you know, close kind of concept. Um, but yeah, I mean, also I think I could be wrong. Noah, you might know more about this or Mike, but there's not really for all intents and purposes, any full, 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 like virtual production designed panels. I mean, they're, 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 they're on, I think we're on the heels of it, right? Maybe there's a few, but and these are people all, like these are all yeah, LEDs, display yeah. screens. These are like yeah. to be rude, they're jumbotrons repurposed. Yeah, 100%. And and the pandemic helped fuel a lot of the growth because you had these events companies with just thousands of panels in a warehouse sitting there and they're going, "Okay, fine. Here just yeah, here take these, you know, Black Pearl 2.8s we have for this this, you know, corporate event we have and make your volume." But these 2.8 <laughs> uh uh Black Pearl twos are not given away. They're like still no, but they're but but from but for a stage that could spin up and rent from that company who will never see a nickel on that thing panel for two years potentially because of the pandemic. All of a sudden, that higher end item is in the reach of someone who's not going to buy it. Is all I'm what saying. What do you think about the quality of the panels at the moment, Noah? Yeah, it's it, they're evolving very quickly. But yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. This technology comes from concerts it comes from live venues exact it literally derives from jumbotrons at, at sports uh, stadiums and it's really only been in the past three or four years that the quality level has gotten even to the point where it's even remotely feasible that it works on camera um but yeah i mean i've heard of a couple of initiatives to develop panels specifically geared towards virtual production but it really there really are, is is so many different needs you know, for and things you wouldn't even think about, like for example, um, when you have a, a an LED wall in a studio, you're oftentimes lighting the subjects, the actors, with additional movie lights, and those movie those movie lights will spill right onto the screen and reflect and cause you know very obvious um, you know areas where the screen becomes washed out. Now, of course, a live venue doesn't really care about that because it, it, everything's so bright everywhere anyway. Nobody really is even noticing, or the screens are way up in the corners somewhere where that isn't even a problem. Um, another issue is, and, and and this is something I know they deal with in the Mandalorian constantly. Uh, the screens themselves are basically giant flat walls, uh, and for sound, that's not ideal. You know that what that ends up giving you is this just horrible reverberant sound. And I mean, it's great on the Mandalorian because the guy's wearing a mask anyway, so it's very easy to replace his dialogue and nobody notices. But I mean, you end up with really almost unusable sound in some of these volumes just because it's like shooting in a racquetball court. There's just so it's much also, reverberation. It's also uh, glancing angle, right? Like you, you know, the angle to the screen really matters a lot because totally. when you're making the jumbotron version, like what do you care? It's way up there, over somewhere. When you're on a stage and you're sort of 10 feet away from it, the more you get off angle, the more you go to, to, to being a okay. glancing angle to the screen, the more you're going to have color imagery that doesn't match what you think it's going to be producing. Right. So, Well, a, a jumbotron in a, or, or, or any other use other than virtual production, there's no, there's no um, 
magic that can be spoiled, right? Because you literally see the wall. It's an additional element. You go to see Kanye at the, at the stadium and there's fire, all sorts of stuff on the panel. You know those are big video walls. It's enhancing the thing. So to your point, glancy angles or whatever, they don't care about the guy sitting in row 42, literally, you know, 90 degrees to the yeah, thing because I mean, it's like, hey, the concert's a concert. When I was at U2 in Sydney, like uh, they had this vastly long panel and it just looked magnificent, right? But yeah, like I was like, how many, you know, <laughs> I was gonna say miles. I wasn't actually miles away. I was down the front, but still, I was like a long way away from it compared to a production. Hey, what do we think is the kind of, go-to standard at the moment like uh mando i think was on 2.84 pitch um for those that are listening that's like a a, a measurement between the leds are sort of a um the, the closer the leds are together the better it is for not having moray patterns and stuff so what do we think the current state of the art is for virtual production either noah cadillac or otherwise what do we think sort of people are looking at well, I, I just spoke to a DP who shot a project on a screen that was 1.8 millimeters. And he said, with some exception, depending on optics and, and camera to, to screen distance, that he could actually do a sharp focus on that screen and not get any more A. So, I mean, that's that may be the threshold. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's that's that is really the enemy of these things. And, 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 a, and a significant thing to consider is that above that, you know, you you are dealing with and the and the and I, and as some personal experience with this, I, I found that you don't always necessarily see moray patterns on the day, especially if you're looking through like a viewfinder, or even a small monitor. It's only when you get back to the edit bay and you're looking at it on a nice big screen, you're like, whoops! And then you're in a two D fix, and it kind of sucks, but it is what it is. Yeah, we were doing a car. We were going to do in a car spot, and I'm standing there. I'm looking at the monitor. Direct is looking at the monitor. DP's looking at the monitor you know, 13, 17, whatever, looks great. DIT comes out of his tent on the other side of the stage. He's like, there's Moray on the, on the windshield because we had the, the overhead LED panels tight. And we're like, what? I don't see. And then we're like, oh. We, and then all of a sudden, that's all you can see, obviously. And you start angling and this, that, and the other thing and, you know, doing what you can. Because we were literally focusing on the panel on an incident angle bounce off the <laughs> windshield. Yeah, I mean, the, the Christie rule of thumb, right, is you take the pitch, multiply it by eight, and that's about how far away you can stand for optimum viewing. So if it's like a 2.8, you're like, you know, 20 feet or whatever. If it's a 1.8, 1.9, you're at like 14 feet kind of thing. Um, but it's, so that's pitch. We've also got like how good is the, uh, what we call the the binning on the LEDs and for those of you listening, not familiar, binning is like what they do with LEDs. They make LEDs, they look at them and they say, how good are the quality of these LEDs? And if they're really close to spec, they put them in the good bins. And if they're less, they put them in the less good bins and they charge accordingly. But it doesn't stop there. What somebody does when they make an LED light is they try and average stuff. So if you buy a bunch of LEDs that are plus or minus quite a bit, you have a lot of them, they kind of average out to what you expect. That's very different from having a whole lot of really good quality LEDs in the first place that average to about what I expected. And so if you have this range because you use the kind of, you know, plus or minus bins and figure it's all going to average out, yeah, on the Jumbotron, it does average out. But on, a, on obviously a stage where we're looking at these things close up, um, that's a problem. And it's a problem not just because of the inconsistency of these um, 
averaging processes, but they have these LED uh, frequency spikes in the spectral response that are just nearly impossible to grade out. So Noah, do you have a sense of like, is there a go-to brand that is known to be real? I mean, in lights, I could tell you who that is, but in LED panels, is there a kind of a sense of a, the company that most people would prefer to use? I mean, I would say, you know, it's probably down to a couple at this point. I mean, Rose is kind of the the most well-known. Um, let's see, a couple of other ones I've seen in action are like, I know Aoto gets a lot of play. I hear that's, that's oftentimes the one they go to if they're not already on Absent, row. Absent gets Absent, yeah. used. Yeah. So, so we've got... We've got that. We've got the calibration of the whole process. So even if you're assuming for a second that you've got good LEDs and they're well-made and they're small enough pitch and everything else, um, the obvious, maybe not obvious, the thing that they have to deal with is there's a thing that's controlling the LEDs. It's going to have mm -hmm. some variation on the light. There is the, in the camera, the actual dyes on the CMOS chip that are going to affect the response to the frequency of light then there's the ability to take that and replicate it in some kind of software like UE4 and have that passed all the way back around the pipe. So what is a nice gray to my eye at one level is gray all the way through the pipe. And in case of say Mandalorian, the side of the ship that's half in the stage and half on the screen is the same color. And, mm -hmm. uh, and not to pick on Mandalorian or anything, but like, there have been cases where they've had to have a you know late night session of repainting the prop in the stage because it's actually easier to do that than to try and work yeah. out how to get the grays to match through the pipeline. So that calibration process um, and having you know sort of good quality lighting like that's a really hard. I mean Noah, this is like this is like the you know the cutting edge of uh, of this area of cinematography, or I should say, I guess. Um, colorimetry wouldn't you agree yeah so um yeah you know it's funny this is coming up more and more as a as a talking point that i'm hearing about because it's one thing to to photograph the screen as your background but you're getting light from that screen onto your subject as well especially if you have ceilings and sidewalls and not just a you know rear projection kind of setup and the kind of um spikiness in the color spectrum that these screens put out is is actually pretty egregious and kind of comparable to when the very first generation um, LED movie lights came out. A lot of DPs were like, these are terrible. They look so mm -hmm. awful. They, they, the, the skin cast they give is, is just unusable. You know, I, I, I wouldn't want to light up my closet with these things. Um, and, and, and so now that's kind of come back and, and yeah, I mean, that's another area for improvement where these screens just were never designed to cast light that was going to be rephotographed, but that's what they're being asked to do. And so, yeah, what that translates into is more time in post, um, more fixing on the day, you know, wardrobe that suddenly doesn't look right. There's a term for this called metamerism, 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 tough term, but it basically means exactly that, that, <laughs> that the, that the perception of the color is just not matched by what the spectrum of it that's actually being cast is. And so, yeah, people are pulling out, you know, uh, light meters now that can read color spectrum and realizing at the very least, they need to adjust their movie lighting to try and match what the screen is putting out. And yeah, it becomes a little bit of rocket science and color science, but it's, it's happening. And could, could I also add to that whole process the fact that you need to get your panels in batches that are color matched, right? You can't, you can't like rent panels from this guy, company A down the road and need 
oh, I need a hundred more. Let me get it from company B because they won't match. Yeah. To give you guys an idea how complicated it is, if you put up a Macbeth chart, which is, you know, the industry standard kind of set of uh, little patches of color, that doesn't actually capture the, the spikes in the frequency very well. You can see it on a Macbeth chart, but in fact, you have to sort of like have an extended Macbeth chart to even be getting the kind of colors that are being uh, weirdly uh, warped. And I use the word warped correctly because it isn't like a linear offset. We're not talking about like it's all a bit shifted to the red or it's all a bit shifted to the green, something that Jason, you know, you could color grade out. These are like subtle tones that are off mm -hmm. here, but not off there. Like the low end purples yeah. are off in the red, but the primary reds are off into the green. And it's like, it is really hard to grade out, if not impossible. Yeah. I mean, you can't unwarp color, not in that way once it's photographed because you're telling the camera this pixel is this color uh you're not going to completely rewarp it you know whether you're going into aces or what have you uh if they're that far off if that actual color is that far off and Noah, you and i are, are you know obviously uh friendly with uh tons of the guys that are working in virtual production at epic but i have to say end display in its earlier in incarceration, not its current to uh, 4.27, was uh, a bit problematic. It wasn't like straight out of the gate. I mean, it was great, but yeah, there were days where end display just when it first came out, just didn't work. Or like didn't work, it just had like weird bugs that were like not obvious. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, again, a lot of this is just use case. I think, you know, so many of these technologies are being asked to do things they were never designed to do, but they're kind of being pushed and shoved into a movie set and 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 being asked to to function reliably. And so I think End Display is one of those. I mean, yeah, I agree. It's, it, it's one of those technologies that was clearly designed to fit a very specific need, which I assume was, you know, live venues more than than virtual production itself. And, um, but th to their credit, they've done a lot of development work to really bring that up to a point where, you know, it, it works more like you would expect it. You know, they've, they've added a lot of visualization tools and a lot of, well, it's pretty much uh, been rewritten recently yeah. and, and good credit to them. I, I, I agree, but yeah, like it was, I guess what I'm saying is it wasn't when you first put these stages in just a, a no brainer, like obviously the cutting edge at its sharpest is bleeding edge. And we've all kind of, you know. We want that and yet we suffer mm -hmm. from it. Hey, can, can we just turn our attention sort of technically looking forward for a second? So one of the things I was fascinated on the last uh, series of uh, Mandalorian is that they started some of their volume captures out of the volume. And I wrote a story on FX Guide about it. I'm sure you did too know about the idea that, well, the camera actually started outside the volume and kind of went into the volume, which led me to this whole sort of discussion I was having with uh, Greg Frazier and others about this idea that, the volume doesn't just have to be an oval or a sphere or a sort of circular thing. Like the volume could be anything and you could have multiple volumes that are interconnecting, which I think is what happened on uh, um, uh, Clooney's uh, film. What was the one that he did up in the snow with the- Midnight Sky. Yeah, Midnight mm -hmm. Sky had like multiple levels and stuff. And um, now maybe you could talk to this, like this idea of like a sort of spherical volume is great, but it's not the end case. It doesn't have to be the only thing that we do. That the industry could develop vastly more complicated sort of physical volumes, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you, if you think about it in terms of like a Lego set, I mean, you're you're talking about a bunch of interlocking little tiles. It's 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 like laying out, you know, 
uh, a floor or, you know, uh, tiles in a, in a wall or a ceiling. I mean, any shape, any geometric shape you could imagine is, is possible. Um, but I, I, the more that I'm hearing from cinematographers working this, they, they can, they don't really consider it a volume until there's at least enough surface of tiles so that light is being cast directly onto the subject, uh, interactively. You know, if you just put up a wall behind a subject and just turn on that wall, and you don't add anything else, you're going to get a silhouette. You're going to get a complete outline in front of that screen. And the only way you're going to get that sort of interactive lighting that people expect when they walk into one of these is by adding ceiling, adding sidewalls, in the case of Mandalorian, almost completely enclosing up to the back, except for a small sliver for safety. And that's when suddenly you get that nice emissive lighting that looks more like a real environment. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I would say I, I've get to, I, I've not seen the one definitive. This is what a volume shape looks like. I think we're still kind of defining that. I I would I would argue that there is no volume shape, and that it's really the word volume. I think is maybe slightly misconstrued, at least in my speculation, because if we call it a volume, because mostly because Mandalorian made a sphere. But or a circle. But if you think about it, to Mike's point about entering from exterior or moving through it, it's a set piece to a certain extent. And the nature of, I mean, as long as your camera's tracked, if we're like in the Cadillac zone, right? Uh, as long as your camera's tracked, let's say you had optical tracking from brand X, whatever, around, and you were able to move throughout things as the optical trackers picked you up coming in and out of a, out of a, uh, area. Um, you could have one section be behind, you know, a cityscape behind in an apartment set and you move out of the apartment set, but you're getting parallax on the buildings. And then you move into an actual, you know, more quote volume, volume, and then into something else. I, I don't, I don't think we should be restricted in, I mean, I know the, in the terminology, I know that, that I know the industry needs restriction in the terminology, but also to your point about, I don't know if you need necessarily also other panels to light you because we can feed color data from the unreal scenes into RGB lights and other things to pick up lights and you could use black tracks and all sorts of things to track yeah, them in the isn't room. Isn't the volume idea, like doesn't the volume idea denote in language that you are getting what Noah was talking about, which is you get terrific contact lighting. And like, you know, the death of a uh, green screen shot is that the lighting on the foreground subject, mm -hmm. while technically perfect with a great composited in nuke lifting and putting a background in, you know, the front lighting just doesn't quite match the back lighting. Yeah. So your eye just hits that when the volume, the contact lighting. So even if you replace that background, as Noah was saying earlier with a, you know, another one, at least they were sort of getting the right cast of light on this side of their face and that side of right. their face. And it was, you know, the hues and tones were, their edges were all uh, kind of good. And I, I guess for me, like, remember when, when Oblivion came out with Tom Cruise and they mm -hmm. did that huge projection. Oh yeah, Sky system, Tower. Sky Tower. Yeah. And it had, it had three things that struck me about that. Firstly, you know, it just was great for the actors. Like, let's face it, like even, you know, the best actors that clearly maybe come from a theater background and can imagine still walking onto a set that actually looks like the darn thing's got to help. And then you got all this great contact lighting on the actors and their edges and the halation and the way that light wrapped around mm -hmm. them on the bright bits. But then the other thing was 
the set itself just had so many reflective surfaces that were now reflecting you know yeah. the sky outside i was like oh my god this is the future and of course at that stage they were talking about doing uh projectors which have still mm -hmm. been used well on on things like some of the star wars um things so so i think that's like the volume does have to encase the actor for that to kind of work but if you were filming a real person on that set uh that was not a set but up in the sky like of course the contrast ratio would be wrong they'd be you know yeah like you'd you still want to bring in lights because that's what movies do, right? Actors aren't lit like documentaries. So it's yeah. like Well, so what I meant, all I meant was, and I wasn't, I wasn't belittling using walls as lights because, of course, that, I mean, it's not the only lighting, but it, it helps to, to drive light. I just meant that maybe using the word volume to, to connote that you're standing in a, in a virtual volume of a world, right? Like let's say you're on the Mandalorian set, there is a, a volume of pixels around you that the camera can see when a camera points at it for all intents and purposes, right? So even if there wasn't, even if there wasn't a, a wall, maybe let's say their wall was 100 degrees and not 200, but you had lights on the, on the camera side that was picking up, you know, through, through interactivity with Unreal, picking up, lighting information from the scene and using rgb lights to push that light that were potentially much stronger lights than you could get from an led panel the effect would be the same but you wouldn't be used i'm splitting hairs here just to be you know to to play devil's advocate but it, it these are all good problems to have you know how do we best light our talent from this comment that Greg made to me, which kind of like, cause I thought I was being all clever, like, oh yeah, we can have all these multiple volumes and spaces we're moving thing. And he was like, oh, I want to have it, like the props have LEDs all over them. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was like, he sees a day where, you know, like half the things in the room uh, are actually LED um, effectively screens. And so it's not just that it surrounds the actors, but like they're on top of and in front of and behind all of these things that are then being correctly projected. Hmm. This seems, Noah, to me like not wishful thinking, but like, wow, I can't imagine that actually being pulled off. But yet I think that is actually something. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Is that is that just uh, turning a Cadillac into a ridiculously hyped uh, hot rod that no one will ever use? Or is that something you could see coming in our future? I mean, I think it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you, it, it, it's funny because, you know, once you're really aware of how this stuff works, there's like, I mean, now as much as I love the Mandalorian and I, I would not take away for a second how groundbreaking it is as a technical achievement. But once you understand the trick, like, for example, they build a really nice set and then they just throw a pile of junk up against the screen to disguise where the set and the screen join. It's like you just can't unsee it. It's like every it's like every scene that's like, oh, there's a pile of junk in the corner. That's that's where the screen starts. I mean, so I think that maybe where Greg's talking about is the idea that if there were ways to make more of the set itself malleable and part of the three dimensional scene that you, it would open you up to, to kind of do away with that limitation. Um, you know, like I, I've seen some volumes where the, the floor itself is is all LED and there's kind of essentially a seamless join from floor to ceiling. And that opens up all kinds of possibilities because, you know, the actors are now walking on something that is part of a three-dimensional environment. And so, you know, it just opens up more creative possibilities. So, yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it, it does play into the 
there are many, many, many ways to use this kind of optical trick that the LED volume gives you and many ways to configure it and in ways to achieve you know, what you want to see. And so, it, I mean, it's good. It comes back to a trap to something. Is it inherently a major way that effects films are going to now operate? Or is this like a bit of a fad and we've had a, a kind of a, I want to do the new thing and this is the new thing. So, you know, there we go. In other words, from five years from now, we look back on this as being, there are a lot of disused LED stages or they have all evolved and be, you know, a thing. I mean, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say both is what is what is probably more <laughs> likely to happen. There will be there will definitely be a lot of stages that that run fallow because they just didn't quite come up to the level they needed to, or there were other stages in the area that were more that were cheaper or better or whatever. But um, it, it seems like a tool that's going to stay in the toolbox somehow, some way or another for a while. Just knowing how how much hype there is and how useful it is in the end. So yeah. Jason, from your point of view, both technically, but also just from actors and directors' point of view, like how much is this a pull technology and how much is it a push? And how much how much are we pushing this on those directors and actors and how much are they like demanding it and it's being pulled forward by them? Uh, I I think right now it's it's both because there's there's people who I mean, let's be frank, there are so many directors who don't give a shit about technology or care to learn it, or I'm not saying that in a negative way at all, you know, everyone's got their thing. And then there's a, there's a ton of directors and DPs who only want that stuff because they see it to Noah's point as a new tool in the toolkit. And you may not use it every time, but this one time, this one thing you do, you know, I'm always using an LED wall for this thing. That's my best solve for this overall creatively, you know, maybe not budgetarily yet, but you know, overall, I would say to your earlier question, I think the weak point in all of this currently is the panels. And so it really depends on where the panels and the display technology goes to see how it, over the next five years, maybe 10 years, how it really settles in as a, oh yeah, I'm just gonna go, instead of my shoot on my local you know, psych stage, I'm gonna go to my local uh, VP stage because they have this, what is now a more ubiquitous, uh, less niche display medium. Uh, I don't know. Noah, I'm going to put this back to you as well. Cause I, I had this amazing moment once where I was talking to Dean Semler, the DOP from like a bazillion things like dancers with wolves. Anyway. And I, I was being, you know, being all clever and I was asking about digital cinematography and what he thought about it. And I was expecting some incredibly technical answer. And he went, oh, I think it's really, really good. And I was like, aha, why is that? You know, thinking I was going to get into this super techie thing because I've got all these, you know, stupid degrees. And I was going to, I knew, I was going to show Dean something. I knew what I was talking about, right? <laughs> and he was like, oh, I think it's really, really good because it doesn't interrupt the actors because we don't have to stop and reload so often. And I was like kind of floored by what an intelligent, and obviously the guy is like brilliant, but an intelligent answer that was. He wasn't concerned with the technology for his reason. He was concerned with it because the actor would be able to give a better performance and he was there, therefore, to facilitate that. And so he thought it was a good idea. That was it. Like, it wasn't the tech. It wasn't the lenses or CMOS or colorimetry. It was just, it helped. What do you think? Do you think this is a pull or push technology? Do you think actors love it or uh, just it's a novelty? I mean, I, I feel like it comes down to, again, the quality of the production and how they deploy it. 
you know, it can be a real bear if the everything's not set up well and there's a lot of waiting and downtime and a lot of fussing and, you know, finessing. On the other hand, when it works and when it's, you know, um, in operation, I think it can definitely be, especially for productions that would have been just pure green screen. I mean, you know, you can see a lot of examples of movies from the 90s and early 2000s that are, you know, partially or entirely in blue screen environments where you really look at the actors' performances, you can tell they're just kind of guessing at what they're looking at and they don't, they're not really doing their, what they're capable of. I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, they, they just feel like you can just sense they're, they know they're in a void. They're doing their absolute best to be professionals about it, but they just don't have anything to react to. So, you know, I think best case scenario, given a, a, a properly set up and functioning volume versus a green screen, most actors are going to really prefer that volume just because it's just what they need to really give their performance. There's so much more of it there. But my, my favorite example of what you're talking about is the movie, The Sphere, which is like no one's remembers today, but Dustin Hoffman was in it. And, uh, and he on the, uh, the DVD kind of, uh, you know, had a soundtrack of um, behind the scenes. And so this uh, narration, he was saying, so, you know, I'm Juilliard trained, I'm an Academy award-winning actor. I've like, you know, and he goes into this whole spiel about his like acting process. And he goes, none of that ever prepared me to act to a large piece of green cloth. Mm -hmm. And, and I laughed at that. And then I think it was Samuel L. Jackson who starred with him, who said, uh, on his discussion of the same issue, said, you know, they told me when I was looking at this green cloth, this green screen, that it was a giant silver sphere. You are seeing my performance here to a giant silver sphere. But in post, they made it a giant golden sphere. You will never see my performance to a golden sphere. You are seeing my gold performance to a silver sphere. My golden performance would have been quite different. <laughs> and of course... He was kind of taking the mickey, but I, you know, there's, a, there's a greater truth in both of those comments, I think, and both yeah. very good actors who clearly can act on a stage and don't require. Yeah. Well, and Hoffman is, as by the fake or not fake legendary Marathon Man story with uh, Olivier, it's clearly a method actor, uh, which does not lend itself to things not being there, tactile or otherwise. Yeah. And, and I will say, just to finish this discussion, where we started it, for me, the one big, huge advantage is I just love how it brings collaboration to all the other departments. Because, you know, like if you're on set and everybody's looking at something, then you can say, well, we're going to have to fix that. And then I've done this myself. I'm sure you guys had like wardrobe will say, no, no, we can fix that. And you go, really? Well, that'd be awesome. And like, yeah, yeah. And if that's what you want, like, I could do that. And I've done that yeah. with, I don't know, standby props or whatever, where I've gone, yeah, that's going to be a bit. And they go, oh, is that a thing? We can. And I'm like, really? That's genius. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And, and it, we, we just, like our brothers and sisters in those other, uh, you know, behind the scenes, below the line uh, guilds and stuff are really good at their craft, but we don't let them be as good as they can be if they're not allowed to collaborate and participate. And so I guess as much as I, think it's important that the directors and the actors are, you know, the focus of this discussion. I do think the greatest benefit for me is just watching that, you know, not very senior person on set. It's great at what they do. Just be able to be the best that they can be because they can collaborate in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that's just a marvelous thing. I don't know what you think. I mean, filmmaking is a team sport, no matter what auteur will tell you different. It is. Nobody makes a movie by themselves. And uh, agreed. I mean, I, I can echo and mirror any one of those stories where if 
you're just having an off offhand conversation where you're not even addressing that department and they overhear you and they go, uh, you know, same thing. Yeah. I can just like, if you give me 10 minutes, I will do exactly what you think you're going to do later. And like, I have an idea and you're like, awesome, cool. Like I'll go to crafty. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'll see you in 10 minutes, you know, like that's, and that's the fun part. Like you want to enable people to, to, to do their best and feel like creative and that they're, that they're performing at the best of their ability. Wow. Well, I just want to thank you guys so much for uh, having this chat with us. Uh, it's just been pure joy. And Noah, I love the stuff that you've been doing uh, for, for years now, but uh, clearly one of the great advantages is you've had uh, an opportunity to see and talk to so many people in so many different areas. Uh, so, you know, as none of us are kind of selling anything and uh, whatever, it's actually a lovely, refreshing uh, non-studio <laughs> Uh, uh, chat. So thank you so much for taking time. And Jason, as always, my friend, uh, a, a great pleasure to have your uh, New York perspective. Thank you so much uh, for listening to me right along. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly, my friend. <laughs> okay, guys, thanks so much. And, uh, and thank you guys for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.